recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagonia.org. This is Christagonia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 15th, 2013. In the last segment of this presentation of the Prophecy of Amos, we spent a considerable amount of time examining the phrase, all the families of the earth, which appears in Amos 3.2. In the light of the context of Scripture, we shall not again dwell at length on that phrase here. However, we shall summarize a few things from last week's presentation. Last week's presentation was more or less a rant or a sermon against certain universalists, certain so-called identity Christians who have either always been closet universalists or who have, for one reason or another, turned towards universalism, which for some reason, this is maybe why pastors should retire at a certain age, or at least some of them are well past retirement. It seems to me that many um, Christian identity pastors have gotten soft in their older years and have turned to universalism. We might get, men seem to um, let their empathy show more easily in their old age. They become more sentimental. Sometimes I believe that affects their judgment. That doesn't excuse all of them. I don't think that excuses the people we were talking about last week. But I've seen it in, um, in the writings of quite a few Christian identity pastors who got soft in their old age. Perhaps they were well past the age where they should have retired. Here I will commence with the presentation of Amos chapter 3. There's a little history in tonight's lesson. I've been using um, the first two chapters of Amos. I used as a platform in order to demonstrate that the Bible, the historic story of the Bible, the historical narrative of the Bible, is indeed true. And we've only covered that issue in part here in Amos, wherever we could demonstrate that the, um, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah did indeed exist. The people of Israel and Judah were indeed taken into Assyrian captivity. The cities of Israel and Judah did it indeed suffer the calamities that the Bible said they did. And that the bastards in Palestine today are the result of the pronouncement of the curses of Yahweh upon the people who would remain and upon those lands. All those things are important. Amos chapter 3, I I believe last week, while we talked a little bit about history, it was mostly about fulfillment and the the, the fulfillment of the prophecies. 
concerning the promises to Abraham, concerning the phrase, all the families of the earth. We'll continue in that vein this week. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. Amos 3.1 Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The phrase, all the families of the earth, can only refer to all of the white Genesis 10 nations of the Adamic Oikumene, which is the biblical context that is provided by Genesis chapters 5, chapters 10, and chapter 11. which is also the way the phrase was understood in both Deuteronomy 32.8 and in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. I'm going to read those scriptures as a sort of summary of last week's program. Genesis 5.1, which I omitted last week. This is the book of the generations of Adam and none others. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God he made him, male and female, he created them and blessed them, plural, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. The book applies to nobody else. Genesis 10.32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. All of those nations can be identified in later history, in inscriptions, in archaeology, in the Bible, All of those nations were white people. Those Genesis 10 nations were the first form of what we may call today Western civilization. They were the precursors, the forebears of our current Western civilization or white civilization, which took 2,500 years to move from Mesopotamia into Europe. And the peoples that were left behind, the peoples of the old white world were overrun with aliens. A fact of history. That's why they're Arabs today. That's why they're mixed today. It was also a topic of biblical prophecy, which we discussed at length last week. Genesis 10.32, which we just read, is recapitulated in Genesis chapter 11, where we will read only verses 1, 8, and 9. And the whole earth, or that whole land on the plain of Shinar, which is where the text 
places this event was of one language and of one speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, or all the land, and they left off to build the city. They discontinued building the city they had planned. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because Yahweh did there confound the language of all the earth, or of all that land. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. These are the families of the whole earth. These are all the families of the earth. All the Genesis 10 families of that whole land, which was the Adanic Oikumene. The promises of the Bible can never be extended beyond this understanding. And this understanding is fortified by Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, and by Acts chapter 17. These families are the families which the blessing to Abraham and the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 encompasses. Nobody else is squeezed in or forced in to this language. You can't force Chinamen and, and, and Kenyans and, and South American squat monsters, for lack of a better term, Australian aboriginals. You can't squeeze them in to this language. They don't fit because they don't have their genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 because they're not descended from Adam or Noah, because they don't blush, because they're not a part of the scope of the biblical narrative. The promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 can only be applied to these Genesis 10 nations of Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. So where it says, now Yahweh had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will bless those people of the Genesis 10 nations that bless thee. And I will curse him that curses thee. I will curse those people of the Genesis 10 nations that curses that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth, all the families of that land, just like we saw in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. And in thee shall all the families, all the Genesis 10 Adanic white families of the earth be blessed. It can't be applied to anybody else. You can't take that out of the context of Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. You can't take it out of that context and apply it to Eskimos. 
You can't apply it to Pueblos or Cherokee. You can't apply it to Laps Sami people or Chinamen. They're just not part of the picture. They never will be because this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is proven. This interpretation is proven in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, which we see happen in Genesis chapter 11, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. The people of Israel chosen out from among the other white Adamic Genesis 10 nations, the sons of Adam and none others. Nobody else was even in the running. There were certain identity Christian past, well, so-called pastors who claim that Genesis 12, verse 3, applies to all other peoples. No, it does not. It applies to all the families of the earth, the families of Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 11, and Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, the sons of Adam, that's it. That's called context. Context is very important when reading a will, a testament, or a Bible. Paul understood the same thing. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28, where he was addressing the Athenians, the men of Athens were Ionians, the Ionians, Javan of Genesis chapter 10, verse 4. Javan, the son of Japheth, was the Skion of the Ionians. In the Persian inscriptions, we see the word Yavana, basically Javan, Yavan, is used to describe the Ionian Greeks. Javan appears later on in the books of the prophets in Hebrew, and the King James translator wrote Greeks. He should have written Ionians because Greeks are made up of diverse tribes. Greek was a language and a culture. It was not a race. The other tribes, Danans, Dorians, they were not Ionians. Acts 17, 26 through 28. And is made, referring to Yahweh our God, and is made of one, the word blood really isn't in the manuscripts, but it doesn't matter, it's immaterial, and is made of one, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and is determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. Paul's referring to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, when Yahweh separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people. 
that they should seek Yahweh, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. An apparent allusion to the Athenian poet Callimachus. The children of Adam, who is the Son of God, they are the offspring of God, Luke 3.34. Genesis chapter 5 tells us that this is the book of the generations of Adam. And all the races which are not Adam are not even under consideration here. All of the descendants of Adam through Noah were originally white people. Originally, all those nations can be identified. And they were originally white people, even the Ethiopians. And that can indeed be established in history. Deuteronomy 32.8 tells us not that Israel was a people elected by Yahweh out of all the races on the planet. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Israel was elected by Yahweh God out of all the Adamic families of Genesis chapters 10 and 11. That's what it's saying. Israel is the elect branch of a much larger white race, most of which is then overrun and extinguished by its enemies, the Mongols, the Turks, the Africans, the blacks in Africa, the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Arabs, and their descendants. It is to these people, these Genesis chapter 10 and 11 people, and none others, that Yahweh God refers, where he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth, not all other peoples, but all the families of the Adamic Oikumene shall be blessed. The Oikumene, the dwelling place of the Adamic race. For this reason, Yahweh had known only Israel of all the families of the earth, as he says here in Amos 3.2. He only claimed Israel as his people out of all those other Adamic peoples. Gave them all up for the children of Israel. As we read last week in Scripture. For this reason, that Yahweh had known only these people, only the children of Israel out of all the families of the earth, did Christ state that he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At Matthew 15:24. he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It can be established that Paul of Tarsus understood this as well. And therefore, Paul used the Greek term oikonomia which means the management of a household or family in order to describe his ministry. This he did in Ephesians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 1, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Of these, I will only read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you, of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, Yahweh's grace and salvation afforded children of Israel. They are the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 of that chapter, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery. Where were the children of Israel? Who is blind but my servant? The mystery which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. For the same reason, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, and I will read verse 10, So then while we have occasion, we should work at goodwill towards all, but especially towards those of the family of the faith. Meaning we should work at goodwill towards all the Genesis 10 white Adamic people and especially towards the children of Israel. <clears throat> One other question that this discourse might raise, since it relates to the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is just how all of the other Genesis 10 nations could be blessed in Abraham's seed. Paul answers this, albeit indirectly, in Romans chapter 5. First, we must be mindful that the first promise of restoration to eternal life found in the Bible is in Genesis 3.22. In Genesis 3.22, right after the fall, where it is written, and I quote from the King James Version, and Yahweh God said, Behold, the man, meaning Adam, is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And I'll read the subsequent verses. Therefore Yahweh God sent him forth, meaning Adam, from the Garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, Adam. The Chinaman wasn't driven out of the garden. The Chinaman can't take hold of the tree of life. He has no part in this story. He has no place in the fall. He has no place in the restoration. The story does not apply to the Chinaman, the Mexican, the Latin American squat monster, the Kenyan, the Eskimo, the Laplander, or whoever or whatever other races are extant on the face of the earth at this time is immaterial. The book, the story, the promises, the history don't apply to them. Not one whit. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 3. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every, which turned every way to keep, to keep the way of the tree of life. The flaming sword, like some fools think, 
does not prevent the Adamic man from attaining the tree of life. Rather, it is a symbol assuring that Adamic man shall indeed attain it, that the way to it shall be kept. Why is it on the east of the garden? Because the east is where the sun rises. Get it? He is the light of the world. He is the way. And he is the tree of life. And he came only for the sheep. And there's no other way to the Father but through him. And if you're not one of the sheep, if one has not the Spirit of Christ, one is not of him, as the Apostle Paul tells us. If one has not the Spirit which Yahweh bestowed on the Adamic man, one is not of him. You cannot be a Christian. Claiming the label does not make you the substance. Therefore, Yahshua Christ says in Luke chapter 11, for instance, that the men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment. The men of Nineveh are Genesis 10, descendants of Asher, the son of Shem. He also says that the queen of the south shall rise in the judgment. The queen of the south is a Genesis 10 descendant of Sheba. Job, the man of the book of Job, says in 19, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, and I quote, And although after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, although my reins be consumed within me. Job was not an Israelite. He was the son of Adam. The Apostle Peter explained in his first epistle that Christ descended to Hades, the underworld, the boat of the dead, to the prison, and preached the gospel to those souls who had died before the flood. And they were not Israelites. Finally, Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, For this reason, just as by one man failure of purpose entered into the society or the world, and by that failure of purpose death, and in that manner, death is passed to all men, on account that all have done wrong. For in total law, fault or sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigns from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed an error, resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. But should not as was the transgression, 
in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. Paul's drawing an allegory. We all die in Adam. We all live in Christ. There aren't any exceptions if you have the Spirit of God. And not then by one having committed error or sin is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in a transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of favor, of the favor, and the gift of justice they are all receiving. In life they will, I'm sorry, they are receiving, the word all, all is not there. In life they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. The word all is in the next line. So then, is that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation. The lesson we all must learn. In this manner, then, through one decision of judgment, through one decision of judgment, all Israel is saved. In reality, the entire Adamic race is saved in the spirit. Through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as wrongdoers. In this manner, then, through the obedience of one, the many will be established as righteous. God knows why we're here, even if we don't. The purpose is not for death, it's for life. If you're a violation of his creation, then there's going to come a point where you must cease to exist because all things will be restored. All things which were created after the order of Yahweh, all things between Yahweh and Israel and all of his promises, that's the restoration of all things. Bastards and squat monsters don't fit into the picture. They're not found in Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, ostensibly, the seed of Abraham was chosen to continue and to carry out the will of Yahweh our God in the world. The children of Israel are the servant race because they serve Yahweh in that manner. And in their redemption, are all of the Genesis 10 Adamic nations blessed. But the promise extends to nobody else because the scripture set the context. The word of God sets and spells out the boundaries. If you want to take those promises and include any non-Adamic being in those promises, that is universalism. Verse 3 of Amos chapter 3. 
Can two walk together except they be agreed? I will read several scriptures which elucidate the importance of that. I did last week. This week's presentation will be a little shorter. Exodus chapter 19 is where it began here, which I did not elucidate last week. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 8. And Moses up unto Yahweh. And Yahweh called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called to the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto Yahweh. They agreed so they could walk together. If they didn't agree with God, he couldn't have them as first people. It's that simple. They may have been stranded there in a desert. There is a Greek word, homologio, it's a verb, which is literally to be of the same word or to agree, which in the King James Version of the New Testament is usually translated as confess. The children of Israel are commanded to be in agreement with their Creator, or they cannot walk with Him even under the new covenant. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, the words of Christ. Therefore, each who shall agree with me before men, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore, each who shall agree with me before men, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How many Christian identity pastors are going to ignore that? Therefore, each who shall agree with me before men, I shall also agree with him before my Father who is in the heavens. But he who should deny me before men, oh, let's convert these Kenyans. But he who shall deny me before men, oh, Mexicans can be Christians. But he who should deny me before man, I shall also deny before my Father who is in the heavens. Mexicans can't be Christians. That's a denial of Christ. It might be Catholic to think so. It might be Baptist to think so. It sure as hell isn't godly to think so. 
Romans chapter 10, 8 and 9. But rather, what does it say? Paul referring to the scripture. The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is to say, the word of the faith that we proclaim, that if by your mouth you were to agree with, homologeo, not confess, oh, I believe Jesus, no, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's start there. If you were to agree with Prince Joshua and trust in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from among the dead, that we have salvation, you shall be delivered. Disagreement with Christ is tantamount to denial of Christ. He is God incarnate. God is not going to agree with us. We are going to have to agree with him. We of the children of Adam are formed in his image. We cannot form God in our image. Therefore, Paul said at Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You only, speaking to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Only those people can be Christians. Only those people are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Mexicans can't be Christians. Baboons can't be Christians, whether or not they're covered with hair. Amos 3, verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has taken nothing? The words of Yahweh are not in vain. He tells Israel, Amos 3, 2, I will punish you for your iniquities. And if he roars, as he says here in verse 8, he will indeed take a prey. And those prey are here, the children of Israel. This is an oracle against them. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth? where no gin is for him. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? The analogy is clear in the 124th Psalm. A psalm said it will be a song of the degrees of David. And I'm going to read the psalm because it's short. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side... Now may Israel say, if it had not been Yahweh who was in our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick 
when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters, waters meaning the hordes of the enemy. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be Yahweh, who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. However, here, the same analogy is used in Amos. Yet Yahweh is against Israel, and the nation would indeed soon fall prey to the Assyrians. This time the, sh- the snare shall not be broken. Verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city, and Yahweh has not done it? This is a lesson for today. The trumpet is the sound of war, blown by those on watch as a call to arms for the defense of a city. Nehemiah, in chapter 13 of his book, is addressing those who profane the Sabbath, where he says, and I'll read from verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do, and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. If evil comes upon a city of Israel, that evil is a punishment from Yahweh. Think about this when you think about walking down the streets of any American city at night. And then consider who it is that you should fear. The nature of those people that Yahweh uses against us because we've done evil and because now all of our cities are destroyed and inhabited by these beasts and that's a punishment from God for our law-breaking for our acceptance of law-breaking and it won't be cleaned up until we as a people repent Think about the nature of these people that we fear when we walk the streets of our cities at night. Do you really think they could be converted? They're only a scourge. They're wild beasts being used as a scourge against us, and you want to train them to be Christians? Are you mad? Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and teach them to be Christians. And the wild beasts will disappear. That's the story of the Bible. That's the instructions of our God. You can't teach a beast to be a Christian. Christian is a race. 
I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7. Surely Yahweh God will do nothing, but he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? Yahweh God has spoken, who can but prophecy? Hosea, Isaiah, and Amos all had their ministries around the same exact time. All three men were contemporaries. And they were all publicly forewarning the destruction to come upon Israel. The lion is Yahweh. Through his prophets, he is roared. And therefore the prey would indeed be taken. The word would surely be fulfilled. He's basically telling the children of Israel in these passages that his word is going to be fulfilled and they won't have anything to do about it. Amos prophesied in the days of Jeroboam 2, just a little bit before Isaiah did Amos begin. Of this king, from a historical perspective, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25 through 28 say the following. He, meaning Jeroboam too, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of Yahweh, God of Israel, who spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath Hefer. Now we do not have a record of this particular utterance in the book of Jonah, which we have. It's clear that Jonah was a prophet before he was told, long before he was told to get on the boat and and go to Nineveh, or or to go to Nineveh, and instead Jonah got on the boat and tried to go somewhere else. I'm sorry. We don't have a record of this saying in Jonah. However, these things were prophesied in some degree by Elisha, and that's recorded at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 13 that this would happen. Let me read verse 26 of 2 Kings 14. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, and all that he did, and his might, and how he warred, and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Understanding this restoration of Israel, this revitalization of Israel, which happened in the time of Jeroboam II, which happened in the time of Amos, which Amos must have witnessed, which Amos must have been prophesying during this time. 
We should understand that this should have been a time of hope and restoration for Israel. And while in the historical perspective of 2 Kings 14, the account of Jeroboam supplied here does display such hope, at the very same time, the prophets of Yahweh are pronouncing an impending judgment of doom upon Israel. So we could find a, a, a Reagan revolution in our recent history when all the right-wing Christian conservatives suddenly had hope in this nation. And it might happen again. It might happen an election or two from now. I'm, I'm not making a prophecy. I'm making an illustration. Jeroboam led a restoration, regained lots of land for Israel that had fallen to the hand of Tyrians, as we illustrated it several weeks ago here in Amos chapter 2, comparing the inscriptions to the history in the Bible, it all falls into place. The Assyrians conquered the land, Jeroboam takes it back, the Assyrians come and take it again. We see a political revival and the revitalization of Israel in the days of Jeroboam. At the same time that revitalization is occurring, the prophets of Yahweh are foreboding impending doom. Don't be fooled by these phony political revivals. As long as we're a sinful people, our judgment shall continue. We should only be encouraged when people begin to repent. to ostracize the Jew bastards who have polluted this entire nation, to separate themselves from these other races as they should be, and repent before God, that's when we should become encouraged. Forget about political revivals. They're only going to be short-lived and full of false hope. Verse 9. Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. And behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith Yahweh who store up violence and robbery in their palaces, as it has been elucidated from the Assyrian inscriptions here in earlier segments of this presentation. The armies of the neighboring states, which were already subjected to Assyria, would join in the conquest of other states, which includes the children of Israel. After the Assyrian king Sennacherib had subjected the cities of the Philistines, the Philistines, in turn, had joined him in his campaigns against both Israel and Judah. So, Yahweh is saying, publish this in the palaces at Ashdod, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold, 
the great tumults in the midst thereof. Yahweh is calling the other Adamic peoples to see the spectacle that Israel had begun. And they would also act as his scourge against them. The Philistines were later rewarded with portions of Israelite territory for their booty. We discussed that at Amos 1, verses 6 to 8, and Amos 2, verses 4 and 5. Verse 11. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, an adversary shall there be, even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. I'm going to take a long diversion here and talk about the Phoenicians of Tyre. Because I like to try to prove to people that they were indeed Israelites. Without a doubt, every chance I can. And this is one of those opportunities. The Septuagint version of Amos 3.11 is quite different. It reads, Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, O Tyre, thy land shall be made desolate round about thee, and he shall bring down thy strength out of thee, and thy countries shall be spoiled. The first part of this verse is apparently wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and therefore the Dead Sea Scrolls are not an arbitrator here between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Now it must be asked, should we accept the contents of this verse as it is found in the Septuagint or in the Masoretic text? Why should Tyre be referenced in a prophecy which is against the children of Israel when there has already been an oracle against the Tyrians in Amos chapter 1? That question may be answered in the following verse in Amos 3.12 where we see Damascus is mentioned in this prophecy against Israel although there was already an oracle against Damascus in Amos chapter 1. There is one other occurrence in the prophets where a discrepancy just like this is extant. It's in Micah chapter 7, verse 12. The King James Version reads, In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, and from the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Micah also being a prophecy of the same thing. <laughs> Yet Micah, in Micah chapter 7, verse 12, in the Septuagint, it reads, and I quote, And thy city shall be leveled and parted among the Assyrians. And thy strong city shall be parted from Tyre to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The days of Micah's prophesying were not long after those of Amos. Like this verse here in Amos, the questionable portion of Micah, the real difference it has with the Septuagint and, and, and the Masoretic text concerning the city of Tyre, 
The questionable portion of the verse is also somehow wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and therefore the Dead Sea Scrolls cannot be an arbiter of the text between Micah, of, of Micah 7.12, between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. In the cases of Amos 3.11 and Micah 7.12, I must trust the Septuagint. There's various reasons for that. The Septuagint translators sometimes confused Canaanites for Phoenicians, translating the Hebrew word in that manner on occasion. However, it is clear that many of the inhabitants of Phoenicia in the comparatively late time of the Septuagint translators were actually Canaanites. So they were using Phoenician as a colloquial term rather than as a historical term. Those translators had nothing to lose or gain by claiming Tyre as an Israelite city. If it were truly a Canaanite city. No certain motive could be ascertained if they were trying to pervert the truth in these instances. However, the much later Masoretic text editors, who lived long after the time of Christ, we're talking about maybe the 6th century AD, would have everything to gain in maintaining the false identity of those who claim to be Judeans but are not. If they could obscure history by disconnecting the relationship between the children of Israel and their former great city of Tyre, from which so many European colonies were launched in ancient times. In fact, in ancient Greek myth, Tyre was said to be the birthplace of Europa, the mythical figure for whom the continent of Europe is named. And something which is certainly not a coincidence that Europa was born in Tyre. At this point, it may be fitting that we read a lengthy passage from Josephus from his book Against Appion, book one, lines 161 to 171. I believe in Whiston's numbering, it's book one, section 22. I could be wrong, but I think it is. Here we shall see that Josephus practically took it for granted that the ancient Tyrians were Israelites. And neither did he have anything to gain by doing such a thing. However, note, and it's important to note, that in this passage, Josephus uses the term Judean, which was mis originally mistranslated Jew by Whiston, he uses that term Judean to describe both ancient and contemporary to him, Judahites and Israelites. And therefore it seems in the mind of Josephus to be a religious designation as much as it does a tribal one. This is Josephus against Appion, line 161. And I quote, But now it is proper to satisfy the iniquity 
of those who disbelieve the records of barbarians and think none but Greeks to be worthy of credit and to produce many of these very Greeks who were acquainted with our nation. Josephus is about to list Greek writers and philosophers who had esteemed the Judean tradition of the scriptures. Actually, the Hebrew tradition of the scriptures. And to set before them, such as upon occasion, have made mention of us in their own writings. Now, Pythagoras, I will make a note, Pythagoras was a famous and early Greek philosopher who is esteemed to have lived from about 570 to perhaps 495 B.C. And I'll go back to quoting Josephus. Pythagoras, therefore, of Samos, lived in very ancient times and was esteemed the person superior to all philosophers in wisdom and piety towards God. Now it is plain that he did not only know our doctrines, but was in very great measure a follower and an admirer of them. There is not, indeed, extant any writing that is owned for his. But many there are who have written his history, of whom Hermippus is the most celebrated, who was a person very inquisitive in all sorts of history. Now this Hermippus, in his first book concerning Pythagoras, speaks thus, that Pythagoras, upon the death of one of his associates, whose name was Caliphon, a Crotoniate by birth. Croton was in southern Italy, Greek settlement in southern Italy. Affirmed that this man's soul conversed with him both night and day, and enjoined him not to pass over a place where an ass had fallen down, as also not to drink of such waters as caused thirst again, and to abstain from all sorts of reproaches. After which he adds thus, this he did and said in imitation of the doctrines of the Judeans and Thracians, which he transferred into his own philosophy. The Thracian connection is a much more complicated one. For it is very truly affirmed of this Pythagoras that he took a great many of the laws of the Judeans into his own philosophy. I must note that not only Pythagoras, but later philosophers such as Plato received many of their ideas from the Hebrew scriptures. Another great philosopher of antiquity, perhaps predating Pythagoras, was mentioned by Herodotus, Thales of Miletus, Thales of Miletus, one of the seven wise men also, one of the men the Greeks considered the seven wise men. Thales of Miletus was called by, Her- by Herodotus a Phoenician by race. A lot of people think that Christianity has Platonic elements in it, and it does not because Christ borrowed from Plato, but because Plato borrowed from the prophets. 
and so did Pythagoras, as we have here in the attestation of Josephus. It's clear in Pythagoras, in, in the writing attributed, the ideas attributed to Pythagoras in others of the classical writers, that he was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Here I will continue to quote from Josephus, from one, line 166 of Against Athion, book one. Nor was our nation unknown of old to several of the Greek cities, and indeed was thought worthy of imitation by some of them. This is declared by Theophrastus in his writings concerning laws. For he says that the laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths, among which he enumerates some others, and particularly that called Corbin, the oath we see in the New Testament, which Christ condemns, which oath can only be found among the Judeans and declares what man may call a thing devoted to God. Christ condemned the Judean usage of it by the Pharisees. Nor indeed was Herodotus of Halicarnassus unacquainted with our nation, but mentioned it after a way of his own when he says this in the second book concerning the Colchians. His words are these. The only people who were circumcised in their privy members originally were the Colchians, the Egyptians, and the Ethiopians. But the Phoenicians and those Syrians that are in Palestine confess that they learned it from the Egyptians, the Syrians of Palestine, on several occasions in Herodotus, is the word that he used to describe the people of Judah. That can be proven beyond doubt from the writing of Herodotus. From line 170, and for those Syrians who live about the rivers Thermidon and Parthenius and their neighbors, the Macrones, they say they have lately learned it from the Colchians, for these are the only people that are circumcised among mankind, Josephus quoting Herodotus, and appear to have done the very same thing with the Egyptians, but as for the Egyptians and the Ethiopians themselves, I am not able to say which of them received it from the other. Herodotus trying to track the history of circumcision, which was practiced by the people of Cush, the Ethiopians are the people of Cush. They were white at the time. The Egyptians, of course, are Mitzraim of Genesis chapter 10. They were white at one time. Some of them were black by the time of Herodotus, who wrote in 450 BC, long after the Nubian invasions of Ethiopia and Egypt, when they had become mixed with Negroes. Back to Josephus. This, therefore, is what Herodotus says, that the Syrians that are in Palestine are circumcised. And Josephus goes on to say, and this is important, but there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised excepting the Judeans. And therefore, it must be his knowledge of them that enabled him to speak so much concerning them. In that line... Josephus accepts Herodotus' Phoenicians as Israelites. 
Josephus accepts, prior to that, the people of Tyre as Israelites, where he quotes Theophrastus. Aside from Pythagoras, early Greek society certainly did have many things in common with the Hebrew, which can be demonstrated in the epic poets which preceded Pythagoras, and in the tragic poets who were closely contemporary to the time of Pythagoras. I discussed that in June 2010 in a program entitled Greek Culture is Hebrew, which is available at Christogenia. In the paper at Christogenia entitled Classical and Biblical Records Identifying the Phoenicians, we find this, speaking of the very same passage from Josephus, and I quote, Surely Tyre was an Israelite city, and the historian Josephus acknowledges as much again and is against Appion, book 1, paragraph 22, which is what I just read where he quotes a Greek writer, Theophrastus, and his writings concerning the laws, and he says, the laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths. And Josephus tells us that he was speaking of Israelites. And then goes on to cite Herodotus, and the section that Herodotus of Herodotus's writing that Josephus was citing is Book Two of Herodotus's Histories, paragraph 104, who stated that the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine, which is what Herodotus called the Judeans, were circumcised. And Josephus points out that there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised except the Judeans, by which he means the Israelites back in the time that Herodotus was referring to. And therefore, it must be his knowledge of them that enabled him to speak so much concerning them. Josephus, against Appion, I'm sorry, chapter 22, as Whiston numbers it, or paragraph 22, against Appion, book one, paragraph 22, Josephus admits, takes for granted even, that the Tyrians are Israelites. And the Phoenicians being circumcised, Josephus says only the Judeans were circumcised. And by Judeans, Josephus is using that word to describe the Israelites of antiquity. What are many other evidences in scripture and in archaeology that the ancient Tyrians were indeed Israelites? The final proof that this is so rests in the words of this prophet Amos, who said in Amos 1.9, Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Canaanites were cursed and never could be part of such a covenant recognized by Yahweh himself. The Tyrians must have been Israel. Tyre was not destroyed by the Assyrians 
but it was under tribute to them. However, the mainland city called Ushu, by both the Babylonians and the Assyrians, was besieged and destroyed by the Babylonians in the time of Nebuchadnezzar II. And an inscription of the Assyrian king, Ashurnasirpal II, who presumably, who presumably reigned from 883 to 859 B.C., it is evident that Tyre, along with the Phoenician cities of Sidon, Byblos, Arvad, and other cities of the coast, were under tribute to Assyria in his time. Tyre and Sidon, along with Israel, are again listed as being under tribute to Shalmaneser III, who ruled from 858 to 824 B.C., Adad-Darari III, who ruled from 810 to 783, also had Tyre and Sidon and Israel as tributaries. Tiglath-Pileser III, who ruled from 744 to 727 B.C., lists Tyre as a tributary, along with Menahem, the king of Israel, at Samaria. Menahem of Samaria, he is called. Tyre is not found mentioned in the surviving inscriptions of Sargon II. However, Sennacherib, who ruled from 704 to 681 B.C., mentions a rebellion by the king of Sidon, which had been joined by the other cities. He subjected Ushu, the mainland part of Tyre, to Assyrian rule once again. Esar Hadan, who ruled Assyria from 668 to 660 B.C., mentions having conquered the island city of Tyre and once again subjecting it to Assyria. Under his rule, Tyre revolted and was subjected several times as his inscriptions relate. Ashurbanipal, who reigned Assyria from 668 to 633 BC, also subjected Tyre to Assyria once again, after the island city had rebelled against his rule. Later, Ushu, the mainland part of the city, revolted and was conquered by this king who deported a large number of its inhabitants to Assyria. Ancient Near Eastern text relating to the Old Testament, page 300. The inhabitants of Akko, another seaport town of Asher, south of Tyre, were also either slain or deported in large numbers by Ashurbanipal at this very time. While the destruction of Ushu, the mainland portion of Tyre, is not evident in surviving Babylonian inscriptions, it is known, and it is evident in Ezekiel chapter 29. Although in the Bible, Ushu is not distinguished from the island portion of the city, they're both called Tyre or Tyrus in scripture. Ezekiel 29 verses 18 through 21 read thus. And I quote, Son of man, the book of Nezar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was peeled. Yet he had no wages, nor his army, for Tyrus, for the service that he had served against it. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
and he shall take her multitude and take her spoil and take her prey, and it shall be wages for his army. And I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, wherewith he served against it, because they wrought for me, saith Yahweh God. In that day will I cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. Mainland city. The mainland city, Ushu, was totally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II, which is the service that he performed for Yahweh, whereby he was rewarded with Egypt for his payment. After a 13-year siege, the island city of Tyre agreed to pay tribute. And in that manner, it survived for nearly another 250 years. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great used the rubble from the destroyed city of Ushu for a rampart out to the island, taking it and destroying it totally after a siege of about seven months. Tyre, the fall of Tyre, the magnificent city of Tyre was lamented by Yahweh in the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 27 and 28 of his prophecy. Surely no Canaanite city was lamented by Yahweh God. Tyre was a great city of Israel. I lean towards the Septuagint version of Amos 3.11 to be the truer version. And Micah 7.12. Amos 3.12. Thus saith Yahweh, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed, and in Damascus in a couch. These verses are clearly an oracle against Israel, yet in the Septuagint version of Amos 3.11, there's a mention of ancient Tyre. And here in verse 12, along with Samaria, Amos also mentions Damascus. We've already covered at length the oracle against Damascus, presenting Amos chapter 1. I won't go into it again. While Damascus was still populated to some degree with the people of Aram, who were related to the Hebrews, it was a city subjected to Israel in the days of David, in which many Israelites had dwelt. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, when David first installed garrisons in Damascus and which Jeroboam too had retaken for Israel, something which Amos must have witnessed. Tyre was an Israelite city, and here Amos attests that many Israelites also dwelt in Damascus. Verse 13, Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off, 
and fall to the ground. Bethel was one of the two cities in which the king of Israel, Jeroboam I, had reinstated the worship of the golden calf. The golden calves were placed in Bethel and in Dan. And all of the kings of Israel which followed were discredited for not removing those golden calves. Even though many of them attempted to do well by destroying Baal and the priests of Baal and removing the Baal cult, they still didn't remove the cult of the golden calves instituted by Jeroboam I. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith Yahweh. The words winter and summer in Hebrew are words which describe different harvest times. The phrases winter house and summer house appear only here in all of Scripture. However, where we read winter in the King James Version, and in the, the English, in the English of Brenton Sethogen, this is one of Brenton's failures. The Greek of the Sethogen has a different word. It has the word peripateros, which means flying roundabout, the house flying roundabout, or, according to Liddell and Scott, in the ninth edition of their Greek-English lexicon, the word peripateros was also used as an architectural term, describing a certain type of temple. Both references may be appropriate here. Bethel was in the southern part of the ter- territory of the sons of Joseph, near the border of Benjamin. Dan, where the other golden calf was set up by Jeroboam I, was in the north, far north of Galilee. Therefore, the terms winter house and summer house may be allegorical references to the northward and southward towns of Dan and Bethel, which are the locations of the golden calves of Jeroboam. The institution of the golden calf religion of Israel by Jeroboam I was heavily criticized by Yahweh all throughout in relation to all the kings of Israel who failed to do anything about it, who failed to reverse the error of Jeroboam. The politicians, Jeroboam I being basically a politician, set up false religions for political purposes. Jeroboam reinstituted the cult of the golden calves so that the people of Israel would cease from going to the temple in Jerusalem. If that continued, Jeroboam was afraid that he would lose his influence over the people and they would return and be allegiant, show their allegiance to the king of Judah because the temple was in Jerusalem. Jeroboam reinstituted his false religion for political purposes. 
much like our government today through its IRS 501c3 program controls mainstream religion for political purposes. And that's why all these mainstream churches are basically no better than Tao temples. That's why they've all become multicultural. That's why they've all ceased to teach any of the truths of the application of the covenants of God. That concludes my presentation of Amos chapter 3. Tomorrow night, I will be here to discuss that same thing in Christian identity when we will be elucidating the universalism of Eli James. Something I've tried to avoid for a long time, but now I feel I must undertake. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. I will be here next Friday with Amos. Part 8. Good night. Thank you.